I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and physician and professor of clinical psychiatry, SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University, uh, Dr. Michael Myers, MD. His new book is Becoming a Doctor's Doctor, a memoir. Research estimates that roughly one quarter to a third of medical students develop symptoms of depression, including suicidal thinking. Practicing physicians have higher rates of depression than the general population. Dr. Myers' interest in helping fellow doctors began when his roommate died by suicide during their first year of medical school. That was the start of his 35-year career counseling both individual physicians and doctor couples and developing a deep understanding of the challenges that these professionals face. He's the author of eight other books, 150 articles, and has served on the editorial board of several medical journals. Dr. Myers is a recent past president of the New York uh, City chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and lectures widely on topics like how physicians are impacted by living through a pandemic such as COVID-19. Welcome to the show, Dr. Myers. Welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right, so let's start with your book. Your book, Becoming a Doctor's Doctor, and um, you have devoted your whole or your entire career to the mental health of other physicians. Um, Mm -hmm. What was the evolution of this? How did this start? Why did you decide to do that? Okay, well, uh, you mentioned, um, Catherine, uh, the loss of my roommate, Bill, uh, to suicide when I was a medical student. Um, That was awful, as you can imagine, shocking. I was the last person in our class to see him alive. And um, uh, we, we n- none of us saw it coming. The stigma was unbelievable. This was in 1962. It was really covered up in many respects. And we were basically just encouraged to, you know, study hard, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we did. I had no idea then that Bill's death would really shape my career, both both as a psychiatrist and then also a specialist in physician health. But why I wrote the book, uh, the memoir, is I think there are three main reasons. One is that because I'm a psychiatrist and I care about suffering uh, from mental illness, uh, I really wanted to communicate that we doctors are human too. We're no we're no different uh, than you know than our patients. The second reason was that doctors especially are crippled by stigma uh, when it comes to recognizing symptoms in themselves and reaching out for help. Uh, and in fact, too often um, uh, get worse and or may die of untreated illness uh, because they've been terrified uh, to actually to get the, the, the exemplary care that they uh, provide to their own patients. And the third reason was that I really wanted to also make a point that doctors can have a mental illness, uh, get state-of-the-art care, and become completely well, and that this does not take away from their um, safety and competence to practice medicine. Well, can we start with the first uh, point that you just mentioned? Because I'm thinking doctors, we we traditionally have thought, the public will say, if doctors are, that are godlike figures, they're above it all, as you say, they can't be sick either physically yeah. or mentally, right? We have to see them in, in that right. perspective. But 
Mm-hmm. That's changing too. Yeah. Do you find? I mean, you have a whole. You've been in yeah. medicine for a long, long time, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. given all the information we have about physicians and a whole, for all lots of different reasons, I, do we still see doctors in that sort of godlike figure? And if we don't, is that healthier for us and for the doctors? So that, yeah, that's I guess my first question. I love the question. I love yeah. the question because you're right. It is changing. I would say that for at least the last. 10 years, maybe a little bit more even, you'll see occasional articles in the, in the lay press. Uh, you'll see articles in the Washington Post, in the New York Times, in Canada, where I worked for so many years, you'd see them in the Globe and Mail, basically saying that our doctors are human, our doctors are burning out, or our doctors can get ill, and this kind of thing. And that, those pieces go a long ways toward, um, toward sort of shining, shining a light you know, on that, on that facet of us that we are, you know, human as well. Um, so there's, there's that piece. The second is, is that you can, you can show your vulnerability, you can show your humanness, your, your humanness and still be uh, a very strong, competent physician. In fact, the two can go hand in hand and you can then do a good job of both. So you can still be very confident and inspire confidence in your patients, uh, but you don't need to always hide behind the persona. And there are many now first-person accounts of physicians who have gone public with their illness. And it's so interesting that many of them have told me that if they've had any judgment laid against them uh, for doing this, it's more often from their peers, uh, and it's not from their patients. (laughs) So that's very interesting. And I always like to tell doctors that who are considering opening up about it, that you'll find that most of your patients will respect you even more, that, you know, that kind of thing, you know, if you choose to make that decision. So I see it largely as a good thing. It, it's also driven by the doctors of tomorrow. Uh, people attracted to medicine today, the med- our medical students, <clears throat> are increasingly speaking out about this and writing about this, that why can't we talk about our vulnerabilities and why do we have to buy into this persona of um, that we've got to be tough <clears throat> at all times and we can't you know, let down our guard. And I'm also thinking the demographics have changed. And, of course, you've seen it all. I mean, you said, what, 1962 Mm -hmm. is when you began and now uh, Mm -hmm. 2020. But uh, the difference in the medical students, I'm interested in your perspective, the difference in the medical students themselves today. They're younger. They're women. I mean, I assume that changes everything, Mm -hmm. I have to say, because when you have half of them, young medical students, women, whereas, what, 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. that wasn't true. Um, And women, I think, do tend to show their vulnerabilities more just as human beings. I have to add that. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. So, but you you also have to see your doctor as somebody who is an authority and I'm finding, and then I'll, then I'll stop, but you go to a physician today and most of them will give their diagnosis, talk to you about whatever it is the issue is, but then suggest go online and look it up too. do some of your own research. I find that that's a kind in the past, let's say, five years is a very different kind of phenomenon rather than, mm-hmm. uh, you know, don't yes. get other information. Yeah. Good. 
Maybe you can comment on that. Yes. yes. So that has changed as well. Uh, just to kind of step back a little bit uh, to your earlier statements, I think, you know, the, you know when, when we began to have increasing numbers of women uh, enter medical school and study medicine and become physicians in the 70s and 80s, that was really, really wonderful, and it continues to be wonderful. Um, uh, but yet many of them will say, though, that, yes, they've done so much to really kind of change the face of medicine and what we show to our patients. But it really saddens me at times, though, when they said, but it would be a lot it'd be easier to do if we had a little more support from you guys, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true. Uh, you know, the Me Too movement, for instance, exists in, in uh, medicine as it does, you know, in the outside world, too. So there are many times when I think too many male physicians sort of stand by when and if uh, a female colleague is either, I don't know, being treated, um, you, know, you know, not very uh, fairly as a co-professional or there could be a Less microaggression than. that's going on and things like that where, where everybody needs to speak up. You know, right now we're living through, of course, so much racism in medicine, things like that, that we're, thank goodness for increasing numbers of minority women and men in medicine, because that's making a big change as well. But your other comment, though, that has to do with a more kind of participatory practice of medicine is also very important, that that we as physicians, you know, can certainly, uh, you know, provide, you know, a high knowledge base and experience and clinical skills. Uh, but yet, you know, what we call, you know, self-education and being informed and learning about your illness, et cetera, et cetera, is extremely important. And, of course, there's just so much available, you know, on the Internet, uh, you, know, for, you know, for citizenry to do that. And it really, it really does help with, with all, you know, so many things. Dr. Mars, you also in your book, and I, I was very much involved also in the 80s and early 90s in the uh, as a social worker and AIDS epidemic. And so you obviously you talk mm-hmm. about that in the book and sexual identity and kind of mm-hmm. also making that comparison to COVID-19. There's a lot of issues that are the yeah. same, a lot that are different. So can you, you yeah. talk to us about that? I mean, that's yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, I can. Uh, obviously, the contagion uh, piece is different, uh, but yeah, contagion's contagion. And as you know, right at the very beginning of this, and of course, we were, <clears throat> you know, right here, right in New York City, right in the epicenter. Um, a psychiatry colleague and I put together very quickly uh, over the last weekend in March uh, weekly uh, support groups that we facilitated. Uh, for our frontline physicians, now that would be the critical care specialists, the respirologists, uh, the um, intensivists, the anesthesiologists who were sort of right at the patient's bedside, as well as the emergency doctors who were treating and admitting patients coming into the ER. Um, these these support groups were really really helpful. Uh, for for and I can explain that in just a minute. We set up other groups, of course, for the residents, for the medical students, for the nurses, et cetera, et cetera. But we didn't have firsthand experience with those. But one of the things that we found right in the early weeks again was that uh, that granular fear: Am I going to get this myself? Am I going to transmit it to my loved ones at home? Are we going to transmit it to each other? There were concerns about enough PPE. Uh, about having to reuse gowns, about maybe fears of having to limit who gets um, who gets a, a ventilator, uh, and those concerns, of course, had a lot to do with what we now call moral injury, 
uh, as well when you have to make these decisions that really go against your grain. But one of the things that we found helpful, and I can recall this so much from when I was running support groups for doctors who were looking after patients with HIV AIDS back in the 80s, was to remind doctors that they are doing so much more for their patients besides prescribing or the technical aspects of what they do, the procedural things that are so much a part of different branches of medicine. We had to keep reminding them, for instance, that just your presence, your interest, your caring, uh, your um, persistence, uh, your hope, um, all of these, these, these things that they you know, felt are kind of abstract or intangible are extremely important with very ill patients, especially ones living with stigmatized illness, and for their loved ones. And that's where there are some parallels, because at the beginning, there was a lot of fear associated with COVID-19, too, that so many patients felt stigmatized. We had doctors at the hospital who were off ill, uh, but felt not just that they were kind of letting down their peers who were so busy, but they felt stigma about having COVID-19, you know, like we saw at the beginning of the AIDS pandemic. So it's those kinds of things that there's just so much that that I find that people like myself, uh, and I guess you found as a social worker too, you can help so much by just really reminding um, those individuals uh, about the importance of the, you know, therapeutic alliance, the doctor-patient relationship, your relationship, you know, with with families, and the comfort that that you that you give. What about your own personal journey uh, in, in terms of? Uh, because I know you, I, I mentioned in the book, uh, becoming a doctor's doctor. Uh, you are mm-hmm. <laughs> there's an evolution, and you're still evolving as a physician from you know all of the yes. you, you just and it continues and will continue. So, just in terms of your own evolution and your own feelings of that you've described as a physician, but how about you personally? I know I, I think you said that your own father he was an alcoholic. No, it was my mother. Yes, your mother. Yes. She was and an I alcoholic. Just, yes, I. That's right. I just closed that at the beginning of the book, and then of course. Yeah. You know, afterwards, I had to add the piece, too, that it took me some years to realize. And it, it really um, lessened my judgment when I began to think of how much she sacrificed in this, you know, classic um, uh, traditional marriage of the 50s with my father as a professional. He was an attorney working nonstop. She was raising five kids. Four boys, one daughter, and things like that. And, uh, but also, and it was, I made a, a comment in the book that this is, you know, before Betty Friedan's book, and women sort of reclaimed their voice and things like that as well. So, but there's, okay, so there's that piece, but there's the other piece too that I uh, disclosed, I think about three quarters of the way through the book, had to do with my own sexual orientation. Um, and <laughs> as I looked back at that and explained it, that when I when I was an, um, uh, a young physician, uh, uh, I was studying internal medicine actually at that time in Los Angeles, and I began to struggle with uh, same-sex feelings. And I experimented a bit. This was in Los Angeles, but at that time, it was just at the beginning of the gay liberation movement, or just before then. Um, and I did not feel good about it. 
I, I knew no one who was gay or might be gay, except perhaps individuals I met in bars. I had never heard of a gay physician. And then, you know, that was a, a very lonely place to be. And I was bisexual enough to really kind of just put all that aside. Uh, and it was well, a few months after that that I met uh, my girlfriend who became my wife. And then we, we were together for 40 years uh, before I actually then, you know, came out. And I write about that in the book that back when I was young and struggling with that, in back, we had DSM-2, I think, in those days, where sexual orientation, uh, uh, homosexuality was either a, a deviation or a perversion or a sociopathic personality. It wasn't very pretty to have this sort of sense of, God, what an awful, ugly diagnosis to have, that sort of thing. So, so that's why when I, when I brought it out later in the book, I said, now this has to be here because not only is it an important piece of my own you know, story, but this is a memoir. And even though it's not an autobiography, I used you know, disclosures about myself to explain you know, my, uh, the, the becoming a doctor's doctor. And so that's that's really how it's in there as well. The other piece I'll just add to that too was how how all of my experiences, both well, both in my personal life as well as in my professional life, though, have really shaped me uh, into becoming sort of like more and more concerned uh, about the importance of continuing this work. Uh, about making sure that you know physicians you know, get the care that they really deserve and need, uh, and and we save lives that way. Uh, just one final thing, Catherine. I realize I'm going on and on, but my previous book was Why Physicians Die by Suicide: yeah. Lessons Learned from Their Families and Others Who Cared, and that was a postvention retrospective book based on my research interviewing grieving loved ones of doctors who had taken their own lives. And that was pivotal as well. That was also something to be, I think, what we call sort of representative. You know, it's very important to kind of represent individuals who could not speak for themselves and who are no longer with us. And also, you know, I have to be the voice of of the families and other colleagues who have lost somebody who they really loved to suicide. I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about all the work that you do and all the work that you've done, and then you carried this, I don't know, the, the 40 years, you 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 you, you ha- didn't come out, you got married, and, and <laughs> it's overwhelming, you know, it sounds overwhelming, I mean, it really does, I mean, in all of, and then in the meantime, all that you're, that you've, that you've accomplished, that you keep accomplishing, so um, how do you do it? Who's your psychiatrist? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really prompts that question, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, well, the first it does. thing is that I've been, I have been really blessed with good health. <laughs> Some people say, yeah, good physical health. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but also, I mean, I, I have been. So that really makes such a big difference that I've got, you know, I've always had lots of energy. I'm very disciplined. I mean, I've, I, I've, you know, I've built exercise into my life for decades and decades and things like that. Uh, also, I'm so I'm blessed with you know a wonderful family, uh, and also unbelievable friends uh, and colleagues who I work with. You know, is, you know, as I say, it takes a village, and it truly, truly does. 
And so, but you know, I want to stop you because you say you're blessed with great family and friends. I don't know, family, maybe we don't have as much control of, but I think when you surround yourself with the people that you feel you're blessed with, that has to do with you and how you choose your friends or become involved with other people and so that you create this support system as you say yeah um yeah yeah well it it is true and i you know to when you drill down on that i have to admit i love you know my 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 best friends of course are not only ones who are just you know sort of they're great people but they're also upbeat and they're fun (laughs) And I think that's very important. I, you know, when I'm lecturing to audiences of psychiatrists, I always tell them that. I said, you know, we do, we do difficult work. It's heavy work. And, um, and if you tend to be somewhat serious yourself, make sure that you, you, you choose or hang around at least with some people who have a great sense of humor. And if you can't find those people, then really make sure that you read lots of funny books or go to, or, or watch, you know, cartoons, uh, not cartoons, but comedies and things like that. They, you know, it, because humor and having a good laugh uh, is, is essential. And laughter is the best. How do you do that? I'm going to, yes. And how do you do that now with COVID-19? I mean, as a, what let's we want a yeah. little bit of yeah uh, mental health advice yeah, exactly. yeah. okay it, one of the, yeah one of the things that we have been recommending and the groups that we've been doing as well as the individual one-on-one counseling we're doing at downstate with individuals whom we're looking after with covid fears they may have ptsd from this anxiety depression is that they do have to really protect their personal health so therefore we have to make sure that they're not working too many shifts in a row um, we the basic things like titrating, for instance, the news. Now it's a little bit easier now because it's it's more upbeat because we got a vaccine and you know it's looking more hopeful. But in those early weeks, you know, basically we were saying, look, don't turn on CNN when you get home. I mean, you just have to you have to regroup. Whether that means you know just staying in you know with your loved ones or if you're separate from your loved ones now because you're afraid of contagion then still try to do either meditation or some yoga or just turn on netflix you know watch some movies something diversion i said you'll get enough cme and updates about COVID 19 in your day-to-day work right at the hospital um reaching out to each other is has been very very helpful that people and people are in the front lines. They are really watching out for each other, um, taking care of each other, asking questions. And that's the other thing that's come through this is that asking people how they're doing. And sometimes again and again, you know, if you get that proverbial, um, I'm fine, I'm fine. Are you, you know, are you really like, like drill down a little bit to, to find out really, you know, whether they are indeed, because there's, you know, that mutual caretaking is really, really essential right now. And, and, and Captain, the final thing I'll say about this is that we have seen a sea change in how this pandemic has affected, well, it's, of course, it's affected everyone. But the ones in the front lines, I think, are much more open about their vulnerability. They are using affective language. They are openly weeping. They are talking about being lonely. Uh, about about feeling um, just horribly sad or so frustrated or things like that 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 are just that are just more authentic and yet continue to do 
you know, wonderful, you know, medical nursing work, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, you know, I see that as something that really is, is very, is very important. And, and, and also there's less of a hierarchy. Attending physicians are talking openly like that, as well as the, you know, the, their students. I had seen, and you said CNN, don't watch too much of it, but I watched, well, I watched too much mm-hmm. of MSNBC, so I guess I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Not really, but um, yeah. The, yeah. Well, I think it, was a, it wasn't a physician, a nurse. This is describing one of the issues for her was that she's, you know, in the midst of all of, of this care that we're talking about, COVID in the hospital, and then going home and finding that people aren't taking this disease seriously. They aren't, oh, you know, yes. oh, and, yeah. yeah. And that it's a, it's yeah. to her, it's, that's really a huge issue that is so debilitating yes. for her, I guess. So exactly. maybe we only have a couple that's minutes right. left. So just, yeah. No, but no, but I'm just going, I'm just basically going to say that I completely sort of agree with you in that sentiment. And that's been talk about moral injury. That's been so hard for those frontline workers to, to see people not respecting um, all of the CDC guidelines on wearing masks, social distancing, washing our hands, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, so w- now now that we have the vaccine, um, I, I don't know if you've, have you got, gotten the vaccine yet? I mean, I don't, or. No, no, and, and yeah, that's because I'm probably, I think, in the second group, uh-huh. uh, which, are, you know, let's, yeah, let's remove from the frontline workers, but because of my age, uh, being over 75, uh, I think I think we're the second group. You and Dr. Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think, but right? I think he's in the... <laughs> yes. He's 80, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he just turned 80, I think. Yes, what an amazing yeah. man. Wow. Yeah, he is an amazing... And, for, and from the beginning, I have yeah. to say, it was always, I'm going to oh, yeah. believe what Dr. Fauci's telling me. I have to just get rid of all the other stuff and everything that he has said <laughs> has... I don't want to say fortunately yeah. come true, but he's uh, it's been accurate yeah. and uh, following those guidelines, mm-hmm. I think has been critical is important. Okay, two minutes left. So, so many more questions okay. I could ask you. Uh, becoming a doctor's doctor, though, is a you know, listeners have to go out and, and read the book. Lots of case histories, good, you know, just really a, an interesting memoir. And uh, we've been talking, or I've yeah. been talking to Michael Myers, MD. He's the author of the book. So, um, Give, Dr. Myers, give us a website and or websites we can go to for more information about you and sure. the book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot on my website, which is www.michaelfmyers.com. Uh, but, and also the book is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And there's a lot of other information, too, on my website. I try to keep it pretty well up to date because I've been doing a number of podcasts. I write a blog on psychology today as well as, well as Psych Congress. And so there's lots of that information that's been transposed there as well because, you know, as you said, Catherine, I, I, continue, to, I continue to be passionate about all of this and and uh, it's very important to me and others, and that's what I'm excited about. There's so many younger people coming along who are very interested in physician health, and that, that makes me feel wonderful. Well, you're their inspiration. There's no doubt about that. So yeah. so thank you so much thank for being you. on the show today. It's been great talking to you. And thank you for having me, Catherine. All, all, all the best to you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 